Hello and welcome to another episode of the Envisioneering Exchange, the podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in building and urban efficiency. I'm your host, John Sheff, Dan Foss's Director of Public and Industry Affairs. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Today's topic is the green building movement and its impact on Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I am really excited to talk with Jenna Kramer and Chris Seeslack, both of whom represent the Green Building Alliance. Jenna is the executive director of the GBA and Chris is its vice president for program strategy and impact. Now, the GBA advances innovation in the built environment around Pittsburgh and the 26 counties of Western Pennsylvania. It's been founded in 1993 and it is one of the oldest regional green building organizations in the country. Jen and Chris, welcome. Why don't you uh, tell us a bit about yourselves and the GBA's mission? Hi, John. Thank you so much for having us. We're very excited to be here today. As you mentioned, my name is Jenna. I'm the executive director at GBA, and I've been with the organization for 13 years and have been there because I fell in love with the vision and mission and have stayed because the work continues to evolve and is very exciting with the impact that we are having. Like you mentioned, we were started in 1993, the same year as the U.S. Green Building Council, and have continued to work since then over the last 28 years to uh, advance the work within the built environment. And so our vision is that every building and every community is sustainable so that every person can thrive. And it's important for us to be always centering people at the center of our work and our mission. We were started so early on because of Pittsburgh's thought leadership, collaboration, just a very cross-sector, multidisciplinary effort of leaders. So it's the philanthropic community, the business community, our government leaders, our higher education institutions, and even nonprofits. And early on, leaders knew that the built environment strongly impacted quality of life. And that's when GBA started. And we've been working on that ever since. So it's really great to be here. And my name is Chris Seaslack. I'm the Vice President of Program Strategy and Impact. I've only been with GBA for about 14 months, uh, joined during the COVID pandemic. But my background has primarily been owner's representative project management for a variety of cultural and institutional development projects, both in Pittsburgh and across North America. So uh, many of the buildings that I've developed in my career have been sustainable or LEED certified. And when I had the opportunity to join GBA and influence other developers and project managers towards a healthy, high-performing building, uh, I jumped at the chance. I was really excited to do it. So I think my background fits really well with the mission of GBA. Um, I'm also a veteran, and so uh, my experience in the military allows me to organize the initiative that I focus on and really kind of rally the resources towards accomplishing the mission. I focus on the 2030 challenge and the 2030 district, so I'll be talking a little bit more about that. That's one of the programs within Green Building Alliance as the umbrella organization. Yeah, I'm excited to get into the 2030 district and what they do. I've, I've had some experience with some other cities. But before we do that, let's talk a bit about Pittsburgh. Now, Pittsburgh is such an interesting city from its industrial past, and they've done a great job of kind of transitioning to a 21st century economy. And the building stock is really awesome, too. One of my favorite HGTV shows is based on Pittsburgh, and uh, <laughs> the buildings they use there are, are just awesome. So tell us a bit about Pittsburgh, why it's such a great case study for sustainability and how the city's evolved since the GBA was founded back in the 90s. 
Yeah. So as I mentioned, we were founded early on by thought leadership here and also this ability to collaborate across sectors. And we have a very strong industrial past. Leaders knew that we needed to clean up the city, create a healthy city, a place where people wanted to live, where they wanted to grow their families, grow their businesses, enjoy a rich life. So at the same time that we were reinvesting in our cultural life and our civic life, there was also a lot of work around environmental and health issues and equity issues. So when we were revitalizing the economy several decades ago, a lot of investment was put into, we say, meds, eds, and tech. So we have a strong healthcare industry, a lot of excellent higher education institutions, and a strong emphasis on technology and innovation. And at the same time, sustainability, there was also a flagship put in the ground of really investing in, focusing on, and making sure that our solutions are sustainable and resilient and that we're creating a foundation that's meant to last. I say there's a lot of grit here, a lot of collaboration, a lot of just roll up your sleeves and make it happen. So when we even think about the evolution of the green building movement, when some of the first rating systems were launched like LEED in the early 2000s, many people put great ideas out on a national level, but Pittsburgh would take those ideas make them tangible, put them into the ground. So we had some of the very first green firsts. So three of the first 13 LEED certified projects in the country were in Pittsburgh. And, you know, since that point in time, every time there were advancements in sustainability or green building movements, we were early adopters and innovators. So when the Living Building Challenge was released, we had some of the very first living buildings in Pittsburgh. When Passive House made its way to the United States, we have some of the first Passive House projects here. We, as GBA, train Passive House designers and also tradespeople. So we just have this innovative spirit and collaboration and people who want to get things done. And Chris will also talk about the 2030 district. You know, the idea was launched on a national level. We adopted it in Pittsburgh and soon became the largest 2030 district. And it's leadership from a lot of different sectors. GBA partners with many different people. So we have leadership in government, whether it's on a city's scale with the city of Pittsburgh or on the county scale with Allegheny County and even a lot of municipalities or other communities around that area. We work a lot in Northwest PA with Erie. So it's in then the business sector, which Chris will talk about as well. So it's all of these leaders working together to keep advancing what we think is possible and doing it on a larger and larger scale. So trying to make sure that we are continuing to move forward Knowing where we are now, we still have a lot of work to go, a lot of advancements to make, but we continue to evolve. So we're on our own sustainability journey with very high aspirations as we move forward. Yeah, I think that's so important what you just mentioned. I mean, a lot of cities, and we've talked on this show about sustainability goals, and a lot of cities and states put out goals, but there's not a lot of implementation behind that often. And sometimes these things get bogged down. And having an organization like the GBA is, is awesome, but you need buy-in from all the different sectors of the economy, from the public sector to the private sector. So that's why I think Pittsburgh's getting a lot of traction, because there is that buy-in. Now, Chris, you mentioned the 2030 district, and Jenna mentioned the approach of very early adopting 
of some of these new initiatives that you bring in from the outside. What's the 2030 district's role in that and Pittsburgh's approach to sustainability? So I'm glad you asked that question. One of the challenges that we have in this industry is speaking in simple, clear language that everyone can understand and that they can engage with at whatever level of comfort and knowledge that they have. So a lot of people are familiar with LEED certification checklists, well, building certifications, Energy Star, so on and so forth. But one of the things that we try to look for throughout our history is making sure that we can find common ground and language that connects and resonates with the different stakeholders that can influence sustainability. So one of those stakeholder groups is building owners, developers, and facilities managers. Back in 2006, the American Institute of Architects started a program within AIA called the 2030 Challenge, wherein they intended their aim was to train architects and engineers to design healthy, high-performing buildings that used significantly less energy and water to operate. But not long after that program launched, it became apparent that the major stakeholder that needed to be at the table was the property owner or the facilities manager because they were the ones with the capital, they were the ones making those decisions, they were the ones hiring the architects. So the 2030 district idea was born out of that challenge that AIA started. And the first three districts that began, one was in Seattle, one was in Cleveland, and one was in Pittsburgh. So our idea was that we would recruit property owners to join the district and pledge their buildings towards energy and water use reductions by 2030. And the engagement is really simple. So first of all, there are no complicated checklists. There are no significant fees. There is no need to hire a consultant or an engineer to work with you to work in this program. Um, You simply need to share your energy and your water bills with Green Building Alliance and with the Pittsburgh 2030 team. It's almost like going to the doctor for your annual physical. We're really just taking a look at what is the health of your building at this point in time and how does it stack up with history and also with the peers in your same use category. So very simple. It's a private program. It's confidential. It's really just meant to engage with property owners that haven't really set too much foot into sustainability or high performance buildings. The other benefit to the program is that in the early days, in 2012, the language around the program focused in on reducing energy to save money. So that was a way of communicating something that resonated with our property owners that they completely understood and cared about, regardless of their thoughts on climate change, regardless of their thoughts on kind of the larger picture. So we were able to engage in that way and move them along the path towards reducing energy over time, as well as in that period of time, we were looking for leverage points where they could make changes that made sense. So if, um, say, for instance, a tenant is moving out and you're getting a new tenant in, now would be a perfect time for you to change your light fixtures to LEDs because the building is going through a transition oh, you already, you need a new roof in a couple of years. Well, this is the time to think about a higher level of insulation or a reflective roof or a vegetated roof. Since you've got to do it anyway, how can we start to influence green building and sustainable solutions into something that you would have already been planning to do? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this sort of long-term engagement with property owners is so smart because the low-hanging fruit here is new buildings, right? We can use building codes to make them more sustainable, but it's the existing building stock that is so hard to upgrade, to retrofit. And I think that approach is really smart. That's what the GBA is doing. What is Pittsburgh as a whole doing? How are you seeing the city or or public policy influencing the existing building stock and moving that stock towards a, a more sustainable way of operating? So Green Building Alliance's way of operating in the world is to identify the early adopters, identify the leaders in the industry, and give them the tools to be successful and then to be celebrated and honored and recognized with the work that they do. That approach helps to transform the marketplace, right? So really what you want to be able to do is create basically normalize healthy, high-performance buildings, whether it's through design, construction, or operation, and make that so that the person that doesn't want to think about it is going to do it accidentally without thinking about it. So that is the way that GBA works. But we work in tandem with the city of Pittsburgh because while there's a way of transforming the marketplace and having the early adopters lead the way, there is also a benefit to having some level of, I would say, a stick to go with the carrot to kind of push the stragglers a little bit further. So um, we started the Pittsburgh 2030 district in 2012, but by 2017, the city of Pittsburgh adopted a benchmarking ordinance that went along with their city energy project, I think is what it's called. In any case, they implemented a benchmarking ordinance. So the benchmarking ordinance essentially is very similar to the 2030 district, which is it's just getting everyone that has a building over 50,000 square feet to identify how much energy they use, how much water they use, and publicly submit it so that we now everyone knows, right? So where you used to have a private confidential program through the 2030 challenge, now you have a public dashboard that the city manages that presents all of the energy use of all of the buildings over 50,000 square feet. So those that didn't voluntarily participate in the program now can see where they stack up on their own and start to make the changes that they need to make. It's helpful because they can see others have been able to do it and there's a way forward and they can reach out to their colleagues and their peers in the industry and say, look, I see your energy use is really low. What did you do? How did you get there? Can you give me some tips and some guidance? So that's the way I see the impact of municipal government and legislation. And the other thing, just to make sure that I bring this into it, is the fact that those types of programs can also start to unlock incentive programs and resources that will enable people to do their work. So if you see that many of the property owners have yet to implement a building automation system or a recommissioning or an LED lighting retrofit program, now the local utility can design their incentive programs around those needs and those resources, or the legislature can think creatively about enacting uh, something like a CPACE, Property Assessed Clean Energy Assessment Program on properties to help finance these improvements. So that's how we see them interacting. Jenna, did I miss anything? I don't think so. I think we talk frequently about going straight for policy as the first leverage point is usually 
not always the most successful way forward, at least from our standpoint as an organization, because we do focus on that inspiration, the education, the engagement, the partnership to find the early adopters and even reach a broader section of our community to show that it's possible. And after you show it's possible, it really does create a strong pathway to then move policy forward. And so we're always looking about at how those things can work together. So sort of that incentive path first and the inspiration path, but then there is a time where I do think policy becomes a strong leverage point when we're trying to bring everyone along or add a lot of those additional resources, as Chris mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I've been keeping my eye on like I think a lot of people on New York City is building emissions law, local law 97 and, you know, the emissions cap. And of course, it's not yet implemented um, and, and COVID has thrown a bit of a monkey into that wrench, but it looks like it's moving forward. And I've been really interested to see not only how it's implemented, but if other cities are keeping an eye on it and, and what they'll do. Have you heard anything? Because it, it is the biggest stick out there that I've seen in terms of forcing building owners to make change. Is that on Pittsburgh's radar? I mean, do you see something like that coming down the pipe at some point? It could be. We don't know yet. I do think a lot of cities and regions are watching some of the people who go first with regards to that stick per se. And we're still in the stages of the benchmarking legislation and seeing if that does make a difference with regards to performance and implementation. So we're not necessarily there yet. And again, because we collaborate so closely with our government partners, sometimes there is conversation about whether or not that is needed right now. So thinking about Pittsburgh and within the boundary of the 2030 district, we have such a high percentage rate of participation of all those building owners And that's a voluntary program. So there is commitment and action. So sometimes I think maybe certain policies don't move forward here because maybe they think that that's not necessarily needed right now because people are already showing the action. Yeah, that's a really good point, Jenna. And just to bring in some statistics and some data, the Pittsburgh 2030 district is the largest 2030 district in North America And just in the district boundary alone, we have 550 buildings committed, which is about 86 million square feet. But the program has expanded outside the boundary of the district and even all the way up to Erie, Pennsylvania. It covers the entire western Pennsylvania region and probably is about 115 million square feet when you count up all of the buildings that have pledged towards the reductions. But even before COVID, the aggregate reduction in energy use of the district members was 23.1% below the baseline, which, you know, the 2030 challenge has a variety of milestones between the inception of the program until 2030. And the goal was to get at least 20% below baseline by the year 2020. So our group of property partners were already well on their way to reducing their energy use in accordance with those milestones even before COVID. Obviously, more energy was reduced during COVID, but, you know, sadly, under sad circumstances. So, yes, to Jenna's point, at this point, there doesn't really seem to be much added value to legislate a law like LL97 because everyone's doing what they need to do already. We do, though, pay attention because Philadelphia has a benchmarking ordinance and a tune-up law, which is very similar to um, the local law 97 in New York City. So, 
They have one, they're a different size city, so they're in a different category. Their benchmarking ordinance predated their 2030 district. So they started with the legislation and the ordinance and then followed with a voluntary program to help people get there. Whereas we started, Pittsburgh started with a voluntary program and then followed with a benchmarking ordinance. So that's where we stand. Hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And, you know, hey, local law 97 is pretty onerous. So if you don't have to implement something like that, I think it's good and help you maintain relationships with your building owners too. But let's switch gears a little bit. Jenna, in February, you participated in Dan Foss's virtual engineering symposium, and you talked about the green building supply chain. It was a really awesome presentation. I'm just wondering if you can tell our audience here a bit more about this. Sure. I think early on when GBA started, as Chris mentioned, we were focused on transitioning and transforming the marketplace for green buildings and realized after that, that as we're building demand for high performance and healthy buildings, there's also an increased demand for the products that need to go into them and the supply chain issues. And so years ago in 2006, 2007, there were conversations among leaders about the need for a green building products initiative And that was officially launched right around the time of the last economic recession. And our region is just interestingly and uniquely positioned because of our history of manufacturing. And so a lot of infrastructure, a lot of just culture around manufacturing and thinking about that network. We looked at companies that had products and may have needed to transition existing products into greener products, healthier products, but we also looked at the operations for manufacturing and how we make those highly efficient and also healthy for the people who are working there. We had a lot of leaders in our area and it was a partnership across the state. So we had partners in Philadelphia. And during the time we did a market study and actually within a 500 mile radius of our region, most of the green building market is within this 500 mile radius. So That was inspiration and definitely enticing for manufacturers to come along that journey and realize that there was a strong economic opportunity there too if they transitioned with the marketplace. And so that effort lasted for several years. We have a lot of manufacturers in our area who adopted it. I could talk about them for a long time, but people like DMI companies and Epic Metals, and they're still doing amazing things today. And then, you know, over the last few years, I think as a green building industry and movement, a lot of people nationally and internationally are discussing the need around climate change and that we can't just be talking about energy use and carbon for buildings and new construction or existing buildings, but we also have to be considering the whole idea of embodied carbon and the supply chain and how if we only master the performance of buildings and we don't address products and supply chain that we're missing such a large portion of carbon emissions that we may not find ourselves in a place where we need to be. And so there's definitely a need to be looking at the supply chain holistically. And I think also just opportunities around reinforcing regional economies, connecting on larger scales across the country or even internationally, that a lot of those things have been reinforced even during a time of COVID. The other thing I would say with the building industry or just sustainability in general, this idea of constant innovation that we know that 
we will continue to identify new products and ideas or always trying to enhance those that we have. And so always keeping an eye on what the opportunities are with the supply chain is really important. And for our region, that sort of speaks volumes since this is such a strong manufacturing history and there's a lot of advancement even around AI and advanced manufacturing. So just opportunities to bring a lot of those conversations together. Yeah. And I think that you're right. That's what makes Pittsburgh such an interesting case study in, in this is not just the built environment, but the materials that go in there, the manufacturing, you know, we're a global manufacturer of products that, that are used in energy efficiency and buildings, all sorts of stuff. So we're always thinking about not only how much energy our products save, but how we can make our manufacturing process more efficient, you know, how we can reduce carbon emissions through our manufacturing process and through the materials that we use. So you're right. I think that gets lost in the conversation about sustainability and building performance and building optimization. Yeah, definitely. It will be difficult to achieve all of our goals with new construction and existing buildings if we don't have the solutions and the products and the supply chain to get us there. Absolutely. Let's move on to, you mentioned the pandemic. I mean, obviously the pandemic is kind of baked into everything that we talk about right now. Pittsburgh was notably the first municipality to implement metrics on indoor air quality. And, you know, this is such an important topic, getting people back into the office, making those spaces safe. How is the GBA involved in that? What are those metrics? What's Pittsburgh's approach to this? So, again, under 2030 program, several years ago, our team started to ask the question of themselves, what about indoor air quality? Pittsburgh has historically had poor outdoor air quality. And so there has always been, you know, it's part of the sustainable, healthy, high-performing building genre writ large that we talk about how the buildings can serve the people in them and center the people first. So indoor air quality is very important part of that. What we wanted to do obviously was study the approach to indoor air quality by our property partners, but using the 2030 district framework was a perfect way to engage in that discussion because we had a captive audience that already had a relationship with us of trust and understanding and technical know-how and so on and so forth. So we worked with the University of Pittsburgh to develop um, protocols for evaluating and measuring indoor air quality approaches by our property partners. This was back in 2014. And from that research with the university, we were able to develop a survey that we could put out to the facilities folks But again, it was really simple. It was in tangible terms. It didn't require complicated environmental site assessment. It didn't require anyone to go out and buy performance monitoring to monitor the particulate matter or the CO2 in the air. It was really just what are the behaviors or interventions that you've put in place within your building that impacts air quality? And they answered it, and we did the survey again, and we did the survey again. So the last time we did a pretty comprehensive survey in 2019, we had about 120 buildings participate in that survey. The survey was administered before COVID. So sometimes you don't get people paying a lot of attention, but we collected the results, and then we went over the results of the survey with our property partners during COVID. So now all of a sudden we had everybody's attention and they were really interested in making sure that the answers that they gave to the survey were actually accurate because, you know, now they would go to check because people were really wanting to know what the air exchange rate was for their 
for their air handling unit, you know, that was important and that, you know, what kind of filters they were using and so on and so forth. So we felt like we were really fortunate that we had the data from before COVID. So now when we go back out next year, we will be able to compare the before COVID and the after COVID response rate and see what types of things people have done differently. Now, what I will say is that when we created the survey, we didn't create the survey with the idea that there would be a global pandemic. So the questions are not geared towards pathogens coming through the error handling system, but there's a lot of proxies for that. So there's CO2, there's particulate matter, there's VOCs, there's odors, there's all those types of things. And depending what the science says about the pandemic, any one of those items can be some sort of a proxy for the quality of your air in your building. So we obviously, we want everyone's air quality to be considering all of those factors, including the COVID virus. Even after the pandemic passes through us and moves on its merry way, we still want people to be paying attention to the other elements of air quality in their buildings because it is important to the occupant health. Yeah, I mean, it's very important, not just in terms of code, but you're right. I mean, there have been lots of studies done on, you know, indoor air quality and productivity and, and employee uh, happiness and all that sort of stuff. So it is important. But wow, yeah, it's amazing how quickly these things uh, enter the vernacular when there's a crisis, how much we've all learned about indoor air quality in the last year. Now, you talk a lot about your property managers and your partners. How are they and, and the commercial real estate community in Pittsburgh, how are they emerging the pandemic and how are they responding? I mean, are are they making the changes that are necessary to get people back in the office and get to set back to some sort of normalcy? Oh, absolutely. So initially, you know, the first reaction to the pandemic was how do we change our dilution of the air? How do we bring in more outside air and improve the ventilation and clean the air that does come in? So by and large, everyone focused on figuring out a way to bring in more outside air, whether it's opening their dampers 100% whether it was running their system 24-7 and then filtering the air by bringing in a higher grade of MERV-13 filters. What that did, of course, was increase the energy use because you have to condition the air, your equipment has to work harder to push it through the higher level of MERV-13 filters. If you're running a 24-7 and you're not taking into account the occupancy setbacks and, and nighttime operation, you're going to be using more energy. So I think what that highlighted for our property partners is that our buildings need to be more responsive to the actual occupant within the building. So I'll give you a for instance. When we tracked the difference between water use from 2019 to 2020, we saw a 20% drop in the use of water because water is an on-demand utility. You only pull it forward when you need it. Nobody was in the buildings to flush the toilets or wash their hands, and cleaning probably was scaled back. Certainly windows weren't washed as much during the global pandemic, so the water usage plummeted. But the energy use only went down about 6% across our district, and the reason why is you've got to heat and cool a building whether there's one person in it or 100 people in it. So what do we do to make our buildings be able to respond to the actual use at the time? Because we still have to grapple with climate change even after the pandemic moves through. That is still a problem. We still need to reduce our carbon footprint in some way. So how are we going to do it? We need to be aware that every time you build a building, unless you plan to demolish it in some future time, 
it is going to require care and feeding for the rest of its life, whether there's people in it or not. So think really carefully about how you put your building together because you're going to be taking care of it for a very long time. Yeah, I totally agree. And we've talked a lot on this show about the need for variable speed technology in all of our motors, our HVAC system, the fans, pumps, whatever it is in these buildings so that the the system can ramp up and down depending on occupancy. And it's not just a on-off system like we see in so many, particularly older buildings. So I think that that's going to become even more important as we kind of go forward to address the changes that you mentioned, you know, I heard we had a guest on from New York City and he said, you know, at one point the building occupancy rate in New York was 10%, but the energy had only gone down maybe 20%. I mean, it's just insane. You're right. These buildings need to be on and, and using energy even when nobody's in them. And we need to figure out how to address that. But as we wrap up here, we like to ask kind of a forward looking question. So how is the Green Building Alliance preparing for the next five years, the next 10 years? And what does the future of sustainable building look like in the Pittsburgh area as we kind of move forward? Yeah. So this is a question we think about a lot. Even in 2019, after the last IPCC report on climate change, our team knew that that was a calling to do our work better, to do it quicker and to engage more people as quickly as we can, because we know that the built environment is the biggest contributor to climate change, but also presents the most solutions and solutions that will impact the most people, improve quality of life and human health, but also address things like social equity and how we create thriving economies. So GBA's work we seek to have impact in four areas. So we want to have a meaningful impact on climate change, on human health and well-being, on social equity, and thriving economies. We started a 10-year strategic plan knowing that this decade of work is extremely critical. And we are a region and a place that we don't rest on our laurels. We know we have to do better. And we know we have to impact more people and do it in a more equitable way. And so... Given this urgency, we have thought about how we take all the good work that has happened and how do we accelerate it. So in 2019, we officially became the second International Center of Excellence on High Performance Building, an initiative that is led by the UNECE Committee on Sustainable Energy, and it's part of their High Performance Buildings Initiative. And we know that that work will help bring together the key stakeholders that we need across public and private sectors, really help us think through the education, the training, the practice, but also policies and incentives and innovative financing and really transform the built environment in a rapid way. And we want to have the biggest impact we can on our region and really see what it would look like if every building and every community were sustainable. But we also know that if we succeed alone as Pittsburgh and Western PA without our partners across the country and across the world, that we collectively are not going to be in a good place either. And so the idea of these centers of excellence to create an international network that is sharing best practices, continually evolving, advancing, innovating, and then helping each other implement that, that that's also going to be critical as we move forward. And that work is really only made possible by, like Chris mentioned, the number of people we have engaged already in 2030 and committed to those goals. And how can we take the center of excellence and bring solutions to the table at a quicker rate and help implement them and get them on the ground? So 
We are very excited about that work. We know we have to make significant progress in the next five to 10 years. We know that that there's a lot at stake, not just environmentally, but also socially. And as we are meeting our partners and our stakeholders where they are and bringing them along towards this aspirational vision, we also know that 2030 for us has been a goalpost for a long time. And Chris, we have these conversations frequently, like it doesn't just end at 2030. So what is next? Well, 2030 is actually coming up pretty soon. I think we need to adjust some of these goals. It's coming up so soon. So it's when everyone's talking about carbon positivity and really getting to that next space, we want to make sure that we're making that conversation open to a lot of people and bringing a lot of people along through the high performance building initiative they've convened an international group of thought leaders and in the first session that happened this summer bob berkabile who's someone who i've looked up to just forever has said that you know we don't need just a few people doing things perfectly we need a whole bunch of people doing things imperfectly. So <laughs> we need everyone on some type of path that is moving forward towards sustainability. And we want to make our work much more accessible and expansive and impact more people everywhere. Well, I am really impressed with not only the work of Pittsburgh as a city, but with the Green Building Alliance and what you have managed to achieve and make Pittsburgh, uh, I think, a model. I hope that that center of excellence can really inspire other cities to take some of these steps. So thank you both for being here. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Well, we appreciate Dan Foss and your leadership in this global conversation as well. So thank you, John, for having us. We're happy to be here. It was my pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of the Envisioneering Exchange. I'd like to thank my guests, Jenna Kramer and Chris Seeslack, both of the Green Building Alliance. And don't forget to subscribe to the Visioneering Exchange on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you listen to your podcast. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and share with your network. Again, thanks for listening. My name is John Sheff, Director of Public and Industry Affairs for Danfoss, and we'll talk to you next time. This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisioneering Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and Danfoss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other website website, computer, or playing device.